The goal was not to advance a kind of particular point of view. It was to sow discord and chaos. And ultimately, I think, you know, if it had an impact on the election, it wasn't persuading somebody that uh, Trump's policies were better. It was to create an enormous sense of disgust with the entire system, so much so that a lot of people stayed home. That's certainly what happened in Michigan. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Welcome, everyone, to The Head and the Heart. This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. Today, Ed, we're going to be talking to Alex Gibney, the director. He's made some of the greatest documentaries. He's won an Academy Award, Emmys, a Peabody, uh, and has been considered the greatest documentary filmmaker of our time by Esquire magazine. He has a new film on HBO Max called Agents of Chaos that we watched this weekend, two parts. It's absolutely riveting. Yeah, it's a terrific movie, and it's something that I really encourage everyone to see, and I can't wait to speak to Alex about it. You know, watching a really detailed deconstruction of the Russian election interference in 2016 is really frightening. And, you know, it makes you appreciate just how, um, in some ways, helpless it feels to combat something like this, because what they were able to successfully do is weaponize our own biases and our own prejudices against us. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, you really wonder what it would really require in terms of people's own commitment to the truth and their own commitment to putting their biases aside to be able to successfully combat this kind of propagandizing to the population. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, what it highlighted was that there's this warfare that exists in the world that candidly uh, we're simply not prepared for as a culture in our country. And we're not prepared for it because, you know, we're so busy fighting each other. We're so busy dismissing things as fake news. We're so busy not being willing to really do the hard work and look at um, facts, truth, information, and then working from those facts and truth and information. But instead, we're dismissing each other. We're not hearing each other. And that allows someone like Russia to come along and infiltrate really with our own cracks and our own flaws and just get inside, say a little something, step back and watch. That's what I was fascinated by is how they had weaponized that part of it. Well, so, Alex, thanks for joining us. Morning. Sorry, I'm late. Oh, no, don't worry about it. Yeah, okay. Literally. You're the one with the Oscar. Yeah. So let me begin by asking you this. Uh, clearly, 2016, Russia involvement has been looked at, written about, uh, analyzed. Uh, and yet we found this documentary uh, to feel like a completely fresh take. And I think maybe that you backed up and you saw it from 30,000 feet. What interested you in the subject? And what did you think was missing in the story that hadn't been told that you thought you could add? So I think, um, I mean, I was intrigued by the story and I, I tell how I got into it in the film itself when I got that mysterious call that led me to 
an early interview with Glenn Simpson, the, the guy who is a partner in Fusion GPS, the oppo research firm that hired Chris Steele, who penned the infamous dossier. So that's how I got started. And then Lowell Bergman came along and, and, and he had interesting journalistic contacts in Russia that we could employ. And it was just a very intriguing story for me to get into. Ultimately, you know, four years later, I, I, I think the rationale for, for doing the story was to try to find a narrative that made sense of it all. We had been besieged by facts on this, but all those facts were being put into a kind of um, bias meat grinder. You know, it's like, here's another fact, and that fits my point of view. Here's another fact that fits my point of view. But there was no larger narrative. The Mueller report, sadly, was a failure when it came to uh, presenting a, a real narrative because it was so uh, non-judgmental that it didn't uh, allow you to really understand what was happening. I mean, you can say that the phone book is a collection of facts, but it doesn't lead to much greater understanding, except unless if you want to dial someone's number, you know, um, it, it doesn't help you understand the way the world works. And so I felt that that Agents of Chaos was an opportunity to get at just what had happened in 2016. What did Russia do and how did what we did over here interact with that, but we wanted to do it in a way that didn't diminish the story by excluding inconvenient contradictions. And, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in the idea of embracing contradictions. And a lot of this story was, was lunacy. It was full of high comedy. It was full of all sorts of chaotic elements, which ultimately led us to the, um, the title agents of chaos which was both they're both agents of chaos by intent and 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 often by accident but um but in any event it it seemed a way of of creating a compelling narrative of what happened while at the same time not making it um um false by creating an order that really wasn't there. And when I say order, I don't mean, you know, stream of events, but a, a kind of, um, you know, defining sense of, of how to put these pieces together. Because every time somebody tried to come up with a narrative, like the Manchurian candidate narrative or the deep state narrative or um, Seth Rich, you know, these were false flag narratives that were designed to make something that was chaotic and complicated too simple. So I hope I was able to make the story clear without um, uh, excluding the complications that made it so rich, sometimes so funny, and some, and ultimately so tragic. Yeah, it was really satisfying to watch because you know this story has come out and sort of revealed itself slowly over the course of several years, and watching the film is really like a TikTok through the entire process. You know, not only what occurred here in our own domestic political conversation, but um, the setup, which you go into in part one with respect to what Russian intelligence was doing in the Ukraine. Talk a little bit about that because it's sort of the, the precursor. Correct. And there was a lot of debate internally as to whether we should go down the Ukraine rabbit hole. You know, we were trying to find ways to contain this story. And one of the ways of containing the story was to make sure that we didn't do stuff that went past 2016. 
but we didn't set real limits for ourselves on how far back we would go to understand what happened in 2016. And that led us to uh, 2012 when Putin comes to power again um, through fraudulent means uh, and how Hillary Clinton reacts to that. But then also particularly the crisis in Ukraine in 2014, because it turns out that not only do you get the motive for the crime, you know, when I say crime, the Russian attack on, right. on on the U.S. election, but you also get a sense of how the Russians kind of improved their game uh, when it came to the cyber sphere, because they were they everything that they did in 2016 they practiced on yeah. Ukraine in 2014. You really can't see the progression. Yeah, and, and particularly in the Internet Research Agency, the so-called troll factory. I mean. Early on, it was, it was pretty lame, and they became professionalized over the war in Ukraine, and and they then trained that uh, knowledge uh, and skill set on the United States in 2016. It seems like there's this perfect storm that exists between the training that they do, the skill set that they acquire, and then our in our own country, the cracks that exist because we're so interested in identity and we seem so disinterested in government accountability. You can choose one or the other, but you can't have both. If identity is your deal, you cannot hold the government accountable because you're wrapped up in your identity. And so what I'm fascinated by is that we become this fractured, fissured society. There's this door that opens of social media. They walk right in, they, they set stuff down, and we buy it. What is it about... Um, the media that seemed incapable of covering what was happening and articulating it uh, to to its own citizens. What did what did we miss in 2016? Were we just already too far gone? Were we too into identity politics? I think so, uh, but I think you also have to understand it within the context of an economic model for media. Um, you know, Facebook and Google made it clear that you can make a lot of money by appealing to communities of interest and, and you own a certain sector rather than trying to look to the middle and try to get a bunch of people, you know, as, as was the case in media, you know, back in the day, which had its own problems, you know, when there were three networks, right? You know, you were trying to get the great big middle and, and to have everybody, you know, come to your channel. Um, but, um, the problem with the media in, and, 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 and it became a problem that was exacerbated by Trump was that you could really boost your ratings if you figured out how to preach to the choir, but preach to the choir. I mean, it does have a religious connotation, which is, I think, useful and valuable in this context, but also it's, it's almost Pavlovian. It's like, how do you goose people emotionally? Uh, in ways that they find satisfying, because hate or vitriol can be a powerful narcotic. And, you know, Jeff Zucker discovered that the more he put Donald Trump on CNN, the more people watched. And they would they would be infuriated by Trump, but still they would watch. And there was something about that that they got out of it. So over the course of 2016, you see the network environment fragmenting and also the social media environment fragmenting into tribalism that doesn't have any other purpose, seemingly, except to inflame and enrage people and in order to give them their fix 
of some kind of emotional satisfaction rather than, you know, dispassionate analysis. It takes work to figure out what you think about a topic. And it takes almost no work to be angry about a topic. Or to know what you feel about a topic. Or to know what you feel about a topic. You know, when you mention the way in which social networks are able to target communities of interest, it reminds me of something that from the film that left a large impression on me. The conventional wisdom or thinking behind the Russian interference with the 2016 election is that it was people on the political right who have been manipulated. But what's interesting is to focus in on the fact that also people on the political left were being manipulated. Indeed. And, and you know, as Camille Francois, the, the woman who's, who's such a savvy analyst of, of these kind of cyber, social media cyber intrusion says, you know, the Russians didn't inject anything into the bloodstream that wasn't already here. And in many cases, the design was to inflame passions on both sides of an issue to get people worked up to generate much more heat than light. And in one case that we show in the film, you know, they actually manage via social media to send two opposing groups of people to the same street corner to hold a rally against each other. So the goal was not to advance a kind of particular point of view. It was to sow discord and chaos. And ultimately, I think, you know, if it had an impact on the election, it wasn't persuading somebody that uh, Trump's um, policies were better than uh, Hillary's, Hillary's policies. It was to create an enormous sense of disgust with the entire system, so much so that a lot of people stayed home. That's certainly what happened in Michigan. You know, uh, I believe the figure is 75,000 people who had voted for Obama in 2012 stayed home in 2016. And yet, and Hillary only lost Michigan, the whole state, by um, 10,000 votes. So so that was the goal. I think, you know, very, very successful. Have we kind of lost our understanding of the enemy that Russia is or the interests that Russia has against our own interests? Have we just become kind of soft over time? You know, we're 30% of the world's GDP. They're 1.2%. They're small. In social media, it's Russia news, Russia news. And what I mean by that is they're sowing this discord, this discontent in our own country by inviting disparate groups to the same intersection in the same city at the same time. And the only way they can catch us is for us to slow ourselves down. Have we, have we taken our, our, our eye off the ball on who they are and what they're doing? Well, I, I think you have to you, you have to put one of the things I wanted to get across is you have to put this Russian attack in context. You know, part of the audience for this Russian attack isn't in the United States at all. It's in Russia. It's a way of Putin, you know, showing his people how powerful he is that, look, he can, you know, with with a, with a small band of kids in, in the Internet Research Agency, he can rattle the he can rattle the cages of, of the powerful United States of America, which, as you say, dwarfs the, the Russian economy. Uh, he wants to be regarded as a superpower. It gives him a sense of pride and political capital. Um, I think the other thing, though, is that part of the narrative had been there's this mighty force that attacked us in 2016. Well, it was an attack, but it was kind of a brilliant attack of political jujitsu, which used our own weaknesses against us to great effect. And the goal, I think, was to explore and explode the contradictions of American democracy, 
so that we would be exposed as hypocrites. And there, there would lead to a kind of a chaos of information about what is true and what is not true that would have a kind of debilitating effect on our ability to see through this stuff. And it was compounded by the fact that they were so good at disinformation in terms of occluding their role in, in this and, and also the Obama administration because Hillary thought, you know, she was going to win. I mean, sorry, the Obama administration, because it thought that Hillary was going to win, um, didn't make it known to the American public until it was too late that actually Russia was doing this stuff. Yeah, I, I think it's really important that all Americans um, understand that, you know, while on the surface it seemed like a, a pro-Trump project, and it was because at the at the time and the, the the Putin disliked Hillary Clinton and did prefer to see Trump come to power. But the the the, the big picture here is this was really about discrediting democracy, discrediting the United States on the world stage, establishing the Russian brand, and really making the West look like well. They're hypocrites. Like you said, they're, they're, they're just as bad as we are. Democracy doesn't work. Um, they lecture to us but about human rights, but they don't tri- treat their own citizens equally. And the, the point of this is to make Americans believe that the system screwed up and for us to lose faith in our own democracy. Look, Putin and the intelligence services in Russia never believed that Trump was actually going to win. They were as shocked as Trump was when he won in uh, November 2016. I think it's fair to say that they were on the side of Trump, but they weren't on the side of Trump for any political reasons in the traditional sense. In other words, it wasn't that they were endorsing his policies, and people were always looking for that. They enjoyed Trump because they understood him as a venal, corrupt character who was an agent of chaos and who had no allegiance whatsoever to the rule of law or any of the fundamental democratic institutions that bring some sense of justice to what we're trying to achieve here. So that's why they continue to support him. And that's why people who say, well, but Trump was tough on Russia here and that doesn't, that's not consistent. No, Trump is the, the wrecking ball that is determined to destroy the institutions of American democracy. And that's why Russians support him. So that was the genius of the attack. And the the genius of the attack was that it didn't have to do that much except to (laughs) push us a little bit and to to exacerbate, um, you know, our own very major uh, internal problems that were already raging. You know, you talk about the venal character that, that Trump is. And in, in the documentary, you have this part where you're talking about avaricious kleptocrats. And I absolutely loved that that portion. <clears throat> you talk about this throughput from Oleg Deripaska to Paul Manafort to Donald Trump. Um, the fact that this throughput exists, he becomes – Manafort becomes the campaign manager in the fall of 2016. We're, we're just months away. From the election and Manafort's history was so filled with working for bad actors, doing bad things, and yet we didn't even want to hold ourselves accountable. It just seems like we got lost in a fog. When you started to go through this and really look at what Deripaska had done, uh, how how Manafort had worked for Yanukovych, uh, what he had done with Kalimnik, did your jaw 
kind of hit the ground at a certain point that this was so out in the open. And it's interesting, and I kind of describe how my own mind changed during the course of making the story, particularly on this Manafort issue. Because when I first found out that Glenn Simpson and Fusion GPS and, and Christopher Steele had been working for Oleg Deripaska and hired Glenn Simpson to help find him or find his assets so that they could attach them on behalf of this Russian oligarch. And then the next thing that happens is that he pops up while Glenn Simpson's looking at him, he pops up as as um, as the campaign manager for Trump, now working for free. And my initial instinct was, oh, my God, the Russians installed a campaign manager into the Trump campaign. And I saw it through that kind of conspiratorial lens. I ultimately came to believe that that was absolutely wrong, that this was actually profit taking or or, or money grubbing by Manafort. He's the inventor of the favor factory. And, and, and so he knew that if he signed on to the Trump campaign, there might be favors he could do or information he could provide to Deripaska and the Russians and that that would cancel his debt. You know, he could he could monetize it. He was looking to monetize it. And that's what, um, you know, so much of this was about in terms of the intention on the Trump side. And frankly, on the Russian side, too, you have this guy, Putin chef, Evgeny Prigozhin, who is, you know, making money. And he's making money in part through state contracts granted him by Putin. And so from time to time, he'll do Putin a favor, the favor factory, not so dissimilar. Um, these these elements of corruption in, in, in both parts. But the distressing part that you guys also touched on was um, one of the things that Trump did that was so effective um, in his own campaign was that he basically said, look, I know you're disaffected. I know you're angry. Um, so come along with me. I'm angry, too. And that that became a kind of a brand, anger as a brand, which meant that nobody cared ultimately whether he was, you know, paying off porn stars, uh, you know, to be quiet or and ultimately it seemed like the, the famous pussy tape, you know, was going to wreck him and it didn't wreck him. It became about identity. This guy's like us. He understands us in a way that Hillary doesn't because she refers to us as deplorables. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of identity politics, which has always been present. I mean, let's face it. You know, people have been manipulating that for years. Joe McCarthy did it. Father Coughlin did it. You know, they were all good at it. But, but Trump took it to kind of a, a new level. There's a moment in the film I thought was really interesting. You're having a conversation with Andrew Weissman who was a senior official at the, uh, working for uh, Robert Mueller in the investigation. Right. And you ask him point blank, you know, what he thought about Attorney General Barr's characterization of the Mueller report yeah. before it was released to the public. And um, he doesn't seem to want to answer you. I'm wondering if you're able to give us a little behind the, the scenes of what happened in that room and how you interpreted that moment. Well, I actually think it's obvious what he's saying, even though he doesn't say it. I do, too. Um, I mean, I asked him, do you think that uh, Attorney General Barr properly represented the conclusions of the Mueller report? And he pauses for a very long time, which and that pause we include in the film, and then says, I'm not going to answer that. And that's one where I do know the answer, he says. Uh, sorry. Well, it's pretty it's pretty clear to me that um, he feels that Barr badly misrepresented what was the intent 
of the Mueller report. I think that part of the problem, of course, which I didn't get to ask him, is that the Mueller report didn't do a good enough job of presenting itself so that when it finally came out, you know, it was able to be misperceived in ways that it, it, it shouldn't have been. But but I, I think that's one of those answers where he doesn't answer. But in that particular case, we're absolutely clear what it is he means. You know, I was uh, particularly troubled by that scene. In fact, I paused it and started to have a conversation with uh, Ed about it. Because, you know, I have this professor in law school, and she said the answer to bad speech is not no speech. It's good speech. And Robert Mueller's report wasn't good speech because it lacked clarity. Mm-hmm. Bill Barr's speech wasn't good speech because it was dishonest. But Andrew Weissman in this opportunity knows both of those things have already happened. And to not go on the record and put some good speech out there and to just leave it hanging, at some point, we've got to find enough courage to start to have some good speech. How do you think we turn that around? I don't know. I mean, it's a good, it's a, it, it's a good point. And I think that, you know, hopefully we'll get to a place where we can have honest dialogue and honest disagreement without this kind of, you know, uh, more heat than light crossfire model that we seem to have embraced. Um, because that is ultimately, um, the way forward. I mean, you know, look at what's happening now with, with the death of Justice Ginsburg. You know, suddenly all these promises made by Republican politicians that they weren't going to vote on something so close to, you know, uh, on a new justice so close to the election, they're all backpedaling. And Mitch McConnell, who makes things up, who always makes things up as they go along, you know, simply um, says, no, 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 this is completely different. It's not completely different. It's just a bald-faced lie. And so the ability, though, to be able to engage in a moment where somebody can sit down and hold uh, McConnell's feet to the fire uh, by asking a series of back and forth questions is not going to happen because everybody we've managed to allow for a system where um, nobody's ultimately held to account by honest brokers who are critics. Uh, instead, they just promote their views on social media to their tribe. That was one of the reasons why I honestly thought you were the perfect person to do this documentary because your earlier work on Scientology, going clear Scientology and the prison of belief, that part, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about whether you did or didn't see similarities about the prison of belief. Yeah. And, and I should say that that film was a huge revelation for me. It put, you know, you know, over time you do, or I do films and I learn something from one and then I apply it to the next and, and things reverberate downstream. But, you know, I've been offered for many years to do films about Scientology. I always turn them down until my friend Larry Wright showed me his book, Going Clear, uh, which contained that um, subhead, the, the Prison of Belief. That idea was hugely important to me because as I talked to Scientologists, one of the interesting things was that these ex-Scientologists were able to reflect and, and many of them very, very, very smart and capable people were able to reflect on how hard it was for them to unwind um, their beliefs or to walk out of a prison cell, the prison of belief, in which the doors were always open. But 
for them to do so meant that they would have had to look self-critically at themselves in ways that that didn't make themselves feel very good. So they surround themselves and become much more comfortable inside the prison cell than in terms of walking out, than they would be walking out the door. Um, after all, you know, this is the pillow you've grown used to. You're, there's the cot there. It's, it, it, it's all good. You know, this is a world I understand and I recognize. And so there's been a lot of toing and froing about this issue of like, why don't, why don't certain people recognize that Trump is working against their economic interests, for example? Well, they don't care. They don't care because in some fundamental way, they feel that Trump is on their side. And certainly that's the case with the evangelicals for a long time. You know, people are like, well, why would they vote for him? He's so immoral. Well, I mean, they found a way forward in their prison of belief by saying the Lord has sent us a sinner to take us to the promised land, which is to overturn Roe v. Wade. You know, this idea of the prison of belief is so important. And I see it in, in my own life. You know, you, you're, we're all, you know, you guys are probably far more familiar than I am with that um that Janie Kahneman book, Thinking Fast and Slow. But this whole idea that there are certain snap judgments we make, which can be useful at times, but are often terribly dangerous if we're not willing to question them. Uh, and, And living a life where you're always wondering, am I doing this by instinct or is there really a rational basis between my, you know, behind my decision here? And did you find that those people who do decide to walk outside the prison is that done just on a case-by-case I mean, part basis? Of the, ever- part of it is just spending time thinking about this stuff and being exposed to it and recognizing it. And once you recognize it, you um, you can find a way forward. For a lot of the folks in, in Scientology, the, you know, because uh, I talked to the, the key figures in the film were, were figures who were in deep and then got out. And so I was very interested in how did they get out and why. And very often for them, it was some kind of inciting incident, a moment where they looked up and said, oh, my God, you know, it's like that moment. I don't know if you guys remember that film, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Um, but, you know, Alec Guinness is basically a British prisoner of war. He's taken prison by the Japanese. But in order to give his man a sense of purpose, he builds a bridge uh, for the Japanese army. And, and at some point, you know, British commandos are actually attacking the bridge and he's defending it. And then he realizes, oh, my God, you know, what am I doing? <laughs> like, uh, And he, he realizes that he's got to blow up the bridge that he spent so much time building. Well, that's the prison of belief at work. And so it's really practice. It's being able and willing to to, to question yourself. And, and part of that is a, is, is a bigger project that we probably all have to embark on because we're all subject and that's something that unites us, right? We're all subject to our own biases, and the trick is recognizing it. Well, I think that, and I'm sure you agree, Ed, that that agents of chaos goes a long way toward getting us to back up and look at what's really occurring in the world. And it's a, an absolutely fantastic piece. Yeah, it's a terrific movie. And I would say that um, it's an important reminder to everyone that our sovereignty was violated that we were attacked and it's really important to put your biases aside and it's there are things about trump in terms of policy i can accept that are defensible if you choose to support certain policies that he would advance but i don't find it defensible to pretend that something didn't happen that so clearly did happen yes 
That's right. Uh, the film is Agents of Chaos. It's on HBO Max. We would highly recommend it. It's absolutely fascinating. Alex, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. This has really been a great discussion. One of the things that you talked about uh, earlier, Ed, picking up on that, was putting all of this in terms of a familial relationship or a relationship that we understand. You know, backing out of Russia and U.S. and seeing this as geopolitical and moving it from a geopolitical discussion to a personal discussion. Can you talk about that? Well, yeah, I think what you're referring to is, you know, I often try to think about geopolitical issues and simplify them to the best I can. And the way I do that is to, rather than thinking about nations and countries and organizations, I try to think about just people. How do you treat people? How would I negotiate a deal uh, for a home or in business? Just, you know, something much smaller than the stakes of civilization. And, you know, with respect to Russia, you know, what they're doing is trying to bring the United States and and broadly the West down a notch to elevate themselves. And it makes me think of just things we learn as we're growing up in interpersonal relationships that, you know, one doesn't elevate themselves by putting other people down. You, you try to improve yourself. You try to educate yourself. You try to be a better person and accomplish in your own life and set an example to other people. You don't try to put other people down. You don't, you don't stand on someone else to, to look taller. And Russia really is in a tough bind. They um, have an economy that's energy-based and arguably the world's moving towards renewables. Uh, their economy is, is, you know, the size, I think, of the tri-state area of New York, Connecticut, New Jersey. And <clears throat> it's important for Russia, and this point is made in Alex's movie, to have a powerful adversary like the United States. Because in the absence of a domestic policy and with very few people controlling the wealth of the country and the corruption that contaminates every commercial transaction in Russia, having a large geopolitical conflict and the competition distracts the population and gives them an issue to rally around. And Putin exploits this to stay in power. Look, you can't add by subtracting. And you can't grow by pulling things away. Uh, And obviously, you know, your point there is that uh, since Russia can't catch up, they've got to try to slow us down. What's fascinating to me is how we have taken the bait on that and had these discussions that if you believe in a larger global market, you're a global elitist. Yeah. That, you know, maybe NATO has uh, kind of run out their, their use. <clears throat> uh, you know, I'm not sure that, that uh, the UK should be part of the EU, you know, and so all of these things that are designed to divide us and slow us down, we're taking the bait on. Right. And that's where we are. We are absolutely pulling a gun out taking our shoe off, Mm -hmm. taking our sock off, aiming very carefully at our foot and firing the gun. Yeah. Which means that we're just not going to be able to run as fast. That's absolutely right. And this is one of the reasons we wanted to have these conversations in public, because we really believe in the notion that you should think deeply about what it is you believe or what it is you think about a topic. And you shouldn't just rely on what's been told to you and your sense of personal identity, you know, a a Republican should be able to say why 
they are a Republican and to be able to think deeply about the ideals that they feel that political coalition represents. And a Democrat should be able to do the same. And simply, you know, siding with the candidate that's wearing that colored jersey for a particular electoral cycle is thoughtless. You have to really ask yourself, does the individual that's representing the coalition that I've traditionally identified with represent my values? And what's so insidious about the Russian interference campaign is that it has used this sense of identity against ourselves. And again, not just on the right, but on the left. That's right. I mean, look, it's very important that, you know, we've talked about this with Tim Snyder, that we need to uphold the institutions that keep our republic together. And one of those is a two-party system. You know, it's a little bit to me like a, a car. You know, I don't only want a, a, a gas pedal and I don't only want a brake. And generally speaking, progressives want to push the gas and see how they can progress society forward. And the Republican Party is more conservative and saying, let's look, let's not just push only the gas. Let's go at a, at a proper rate. And I'm going to push the brake and slow things down if I need to. Um, and we should all want that. We should all want a robust dialogue um, and, and the parties should be fighting for our vote and we should hold our vote back as long as we can so that our voice is heard the most. But when we start to get wrapped up in these identity uh, politics and we start to do the bidding for Russia who can't keep up with us and is trying to slow us down by believing that we should divide and that that's how we'll find our true purpose. Um, we are headed in the wrong direction and that goes to our question to Tim Snyder. How does it turn around and does it? And I think that's where we find ourselves right now in 2020. Well, the, the closing thought I think I would offer to everyone listening is that everyone needs to embrace the idea that the integrity of our system is way more important than the ideology uh, behind our personal preferences. It's the system that's most important. This has been The Head and the Heart. You can listen to us on Podcast One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at head underscore heart underscore pod. Also, we want to thank our producer, Casey Morris, who has been fantastic. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review our podcast and leave a comment and tell us what you'd like to hear us talk about. 